Ephesians chapter 2, and we are in this little mini-series on the doctrines of grace. And so we're not, we're not doing what we normally do, which is just preaching our way through books of the Bible verse by verse. This is more of a topical uh, series. We're not exactly rooting ourselves in any one specific text. We're going to begin by reading from Ephesians chapter 2. As you're ready and able, let's stand together once more in honor of the word of the Lord. As we hear now the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We thank you for this good and pure and perfect gift that by your spirit working through your word, you cause dead hearts to live. You cause those who who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked to be made alive. So I pray, God, that you would accomplish your good work by your spirit through your word. I pray that... That hearts would live. I pray that, Lord, your people would be drawn closer, shaped more into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin. That you would lift our eyes to behold Christ, our Savior. To to marvel at, at his righteousness, at his love for us. To, to behold our God, enthroned in the heavens, who does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and in all the depths. This God who reigns in majesty and might and glory and holiness and sovereign grace. Pray, God, by your spirit that you would do your work among us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have started this little mini six-week series on the doctrines of grace, examining the glorious sovereign grace of God in salvation, that God saves sinners, that God saves sinners by his grace and for his glory, that sinners do not save sinners, that we need God to intervene on our behalf and to act on our behalf Again, we said last week, we could, we could psalm this, sum this whole thing up in this statement that we see repeated in Scripture. We see it in Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Savior. It's His possessions. If we were to use another statement to sum up all of these doctrines that we're studying in these weeks... We could use this word spoken by Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. That's what we're, we're seeing this morning as we study this first of the, of the doctrines of grace. It's just simply this truth that absolutely no one could come. No one could come to the Lord Jesus Christ if it weren't for the, the Father acting on them. Enabling them to come. 
So last week as we began this series, I asked us to prayerfully and humbly come before God's word, to to do so together as a church, to seek to bring our understanding into alignment with that which the word of God actually reveals, to to let scripture alone speak to us with full authority, to to be willing then, if, if convinced by scripture, to drop some of our preconceived notions if we see in scripture that they're wrong. To, to instead pick up perhaps what we've been neglecting, what, what we've been missing, what perhaps we have misunderstood, only because God's word reveals it. Not because some man has spoken it, not because some tradition has told us so, as, as much as we cherish our traditions. But to bring all things into submission to the word of God and to say whatever God has revealed to be true in his word, then I, I love it, then I embrace it, then I welcome it. Though it may challenge me, that it may challenge my thinking. There's no way in one sermon, one sermon for each of these doctrines to adequately address all of these topics. In this six weeks, we're really just scratching the surface. But the hope is to put something together that, that paints something of a picture of the interconnectedness of all of these doctrines. Um, I, I, I think with many of these things, we hold on to some of them. And even if traditionally held on to some of them without seeing that, that if this one thing is true, then something else must also be true. Or, or if this one thing is true, then this thing that contradicts it can't be true. And, and, and the American church has been pretty good at being able to just hold on to contradictory thoughts and never challenge them. Because we never think deeply enough or we never talk deeply enough or we're never willing to make ourselves uncomfortable. And so... We're committing to make ourselves uncomfortable, to, to talk about those things. These, these doctrines, these five doctrines we're talking about are so connected together that if the first domino falls, the rest all have to fall too. You can't have one without the others. One logically leads to the others. In fact, it demands the others. And again, logic, human logic is not our foundation. Scripture is our foundation. But, but God created order. God created logic. God created this world such that contradictions do not exist. Not genuine ones. So the hope is to just see how this all fits together and how, how glorious our God is in all of this. And so as we consider the first of these doctrines today... The, the doctrine of our total inability, total moral inability before God, or, or total depravity of the depths of our sin. As we consider the depths of our sin and just how twisted humanity is by sin because of the fall. Just that truth alone that we all embrace should be more than enough to cause us not to put too much confidence in our gut reaction to things. For people who believe that that the fall into sin has marred all of humanity and twisted our reason and our thinking, we put an awful lot of stock in our gut reactions. Well, they must be right. It makes about as much sense as the people who tell me their dog's an excellent judge of character. Your dog's not an excellent judge of character. He does a lot of weird things when you're not looking and a lot of weird things when you are looking. And we ourselves are, are twisted up by sin. We should not put too much confidence in our gut reactions. Our first reaction to important things is usually wrong. 
And so we need to bring, bring all of it. We need to, to commit ourselves to bringing all of it into subjection to God's word. God's word which never changes. God's word which is fully inspired. God's word which is without error. God's word which never gets it wrong. And to subject even our feelings to the authority of the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. That's the goal. So we're looking today at this doctrine of total inability or total depravity. This is condition that flows from our inherited corruption. It flows from congenital sinfulness. It's something we're born with. It's called original sin. And the Bible is 100% clear on this, that it is inherited spiritually. That we are just born with it. We, the, from, from the moment of our conception even... It's in us. It's there. Think, think of Psalm 51. David's prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba, after he committed adultery with her, after he had her husband murdered. David prays these words that are well known to us in Psalm 51, verse 3. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. In other words, at this moment, I'm not concerned with anyone else's sin. Whatever he's about to say after this is not about anyone except for himself. And he says, all I can see right now is ever before me. All I can see right now is my own sin. He goes on, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now David's actually done some pretty terrible things to some humans. Right? Killed one of them. I think that guy's got a gripe. Uh, committed adultery with his wife. He's done some terrible things. But David is so taken with his rebellion against God and what it means to sin against the holy God that he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. The worst thing in all of this, God, is that, that my sin was against you. And so, God, you are right to judge me. You're right to judge me. And then he says this in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now again, David's already made the statement that his own sin is ever before him. He's not blaming anybody else. He's not throwing his mom under the bus here. He's not saying this is all mom's fault. He's not saying the circumstances of my conception were sinful. He's not accusing his mom of fornication or adultery. He's saying sin was there inside me before I was ever born. It's always been there. It's been there from the moment of my conception. David says in a different psalm, in Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. It's not a product of their environment. It's not a product of the family. It's not a product of the culture. It's because from the very first moments of our existence, we were already twisted by sin. We were already corrupted by wickedness. The Bible's perfectly clear about that. And how, how did this happen? How, how could this happen when we haven't done anything yet? We haven't done anything at the moment of our conception. We haven't done anything prior to our birth. What, what we've just read in these verses is that our sinfulness is congenital. It's, it's present at birth. It's something we inherit. Paul says it like this in Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. How did we inherit this sinful condition that's there from the moment of our conception? It was through our father, Adam. His fall, this one man's sin, ruined everything for us before God. One man, the first man, sinned in the garden and brought ruin on all of us. And Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 5 that we are inseparable from him in that ruin. Well, we, can't, we can't pry ourselves free. If we had the time this morning to read through Romans chapter 5, we would see that everyone is united in this. United in sin and death in Adam. Cemented in together. Unable to pull ourselves apart. No one can separate themselves from anyone else and say, well, I'm not as bad as they are. No, there's total solidarity here. There's no separation. All of humanity united. All of humanity dead in sin. All of humanity laying in the grave. And apart from Christ, every single person who has ever lived is born into that state. Into comprehensive slavery to sin and death. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic... So does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you're deceived. The venom of sin is in the very fountain of our being. It has poisoned our hearts. It is in the very marrow of our bones and is as natural to us as anything that belongs to us. That's a good summation. Sin is just right there in our hearts, such that our hearts are deceitful above all others. It is there, and it just from there flows out and poisons every aspect of our being. That is our inheritance in Adam. And that is terribly bad news. It's bad news that we need to hear. It's bad news that we need to know. Well, we need to come face to face with our own depravity. We need to come face to face with our own helplessness because it's, it's only when we understand that that we can really truly appreciate what Christ has done. It's only, it's only those who know the depth of their need and the depth of their rebellion. About, it's only those who truly understand I was God's enemy. I was at war with him and he with me. I was helpless to do anything about it. I had no ability whatsoever to even come to him, to even repent of my sin until he acted upon me. It is only when we understand that that we see just how marvelous Christ really is. And we see just how glorious what is ours in him. If you go into a jewelry store to look at diamonds... Perhaps you want to get engaged. Some of that's going around these days in this church. You don't go to the jewelry counter and they, you say, can I have a look at this diamond? And they go, yes. And they put a, a, a white sheet of paper out and lay the diamond on the counter. That's not what they do. They lay it against a black velvet background. So you can really see its beauty. So it really stands out. Steve Lawson says this. The black velvet backdrop of man's sin must be laid out before the sparkling diamond of God's sovereign grace can be seen in its dazzling luster. That's what the doctrine of our sin and our depravity does. That's why the the gospel message, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ begins with terrible, terrible news. News of condemnation, news of judgment, news of wrath. 
It's because when we see just how bad it is, we see just how good God is. We see just how glorious Christ is. We see just just how great this salvation is. And so Paul says, sin came into the world through one man, through Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he doesn't mean that sin didn't exist before Adam. Satan fell before that. What he means is sin came into the world of men through Adam. Flip in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we will, we will take a look at how this happened, where it happened. We're going to be in verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So so God commanded the man. God gave the law right there in the gospel. And we have here this command being issued to perfect Adam, sinless Adam, Adam created in God's image. And all Adam had to do was obey this one command. You've been created and placed in perfection. There's one command. There's one law. Not 10, not 613. There's one law. And what's the promise that comes with this law? The promise that accompanies this command is this. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Disobedience to the one law. Disobedience to the one command of God meant sure, certain death. That very day. Now in verse, in, in chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent is speaking now. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God has said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, he's got no idea what she's talking about. God didn't say that. He didn't say neither shall you touch it. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Just just the opposite of what God had said. God said, you will surely die. The serpent said, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There it is, the fall of man. When Adam broke the law of God. And what had God promised would happen if they broke his law? In that day you will surely die. God wasn't lying. God wasn't being poetic. That's what he said. If you break this command, if you eat that fruit, in that day you will surely die. Verse 7 continues. The eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
So what did it mean? In that day you will surely die. What did death look like? Death that day for Adam meant a whole new way of seeing everything. The way he understood everything had changed. He saw his environment different. He saw his world differently. He saw himself differently. Suddenly the man and woman for the very first time in all of human history felt shame. Felt the need to hide themselves. Worst of all, death that day for Adam meant hostility towards God. Death expressed itself in broken fellowship with God and in hiding from God. It was that day, it was that moment that death came to Adam and Adam was dead before God. Verse 9 continues, the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sinful fear had entered Adam's heart. He was afraid of God. And again, this is, this is an accusation against God. God who made him just right. Adam has now, now presumed something about God, that God is going to, to lash out at him in anger because he's not wearing any clothes. Verse 11 says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You hear this hostility towards God. Not only is he presuming on the character of God, that God's going to judge him for the naked body God made him with. But now he says, God, yeah, there was a problem and the problem is this woman. This woman that you made. It's her fault. More than that, God, it's your fault. You made her, you gave her to me. It's your fault. I am here because of you. There's such hostility there towards God. That's what death meant for Adam. As we know, death that day meant a curse on all of God's good creation. Not long after that, physical death would come when one son of Adam would murder another son of Adam in Genesis chapter 4. But death entered into Adam spiritually on that day. Spiritual corruption was in him. It twisted instantly everything, such that he ran and hid from God, such that he accused God, such that the, the best gift God could give to him, it was not this paradise he was living in, it was this woman. And, and he says to God, she's the problem, and you're the problem for giving her to me. His relationship with God was broken. Sin corrupted him everywhere. And death reigned from that moment. Capping off its reign in Adam in chapter 5, verse 5, about 800 years after the garden when Adam physically died. But if we were to keep reading in Genesis, just keep reading in Genesis chapter 5, we see this spread of death to all men. We read over and over through the generations, and he died. And this physical death is just a picture of the, the reality, which is the spiritual death. Sin entered the world through this one man, and through him and his sin, sin and death spread to all men. All are subjected to corruption. So not only does everyone physically die, but that physical death is just a picture of the real problem. That all men are are totally under the reign of sin and death. 
No, no one ex- is excluded from this. This is the state of all men physically dying and spiritually dead. All people physically dying and spiritually dead. And spiritually dead people only do one thing. Sin. That's all they do. Paul confirms this for us in Ephesians chapter 2. You can flip back there if you, if you want. That we just read. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, in which you once lived. Physically dying. Spiritually dead. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what it looks like to be dead men. R.C. Sproul says, says it like this. To be dead in sin is to be diabolically alive. We just live to sin. We just live in rebellion against God. Living in sin, living to sin, bound by sin, dominated by sin, living under the judgment of condemnation from a holy God, unable to get out from under it and undesirous to get out from under it. Sin has penetrated and corrupted the whole of man's being, the body, the mind, the will, the heart, all twisted by sin to such a devastating degree that people are capable of the most horrific things any of us can imagine. And apart from the transforming grace of the Spirit of God, we ourselves are capable of all the worst things that we've heard that humanity has perpetrated. Humanity at its heart is hostile towards God. We are not born neutral. We are not born basically good. From the moment of conception, Scripture teaches, corrupted by sin to the point that God calls us dead men, spiritually dead. So mankind then, according to the Bible, is unable to do anything good. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man's heart was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the state of unregenerate humanity. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, you can't. You are as able to do good as the leopard is to wash its spots away in the river. It cannot be done. John chapter 3 verse 19. This is the just judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Romans chapter 3 verse 9. Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's the state. You you, you hear the all-encompassing language here. That's the state of humanity. Incapable of doing anything good. We also have an inability to believe God. 
or to come to him. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Verse 65, he says, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This is one of those things. We just need to put that, put that in our own words and there's no getting around what he's saying. Who can come? No one. No one can come unless God acts upon them. John chapter six or chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Why didn't they believe? He didn't say you're not smart enough. He didn't say you're not moral enough. He didn't say you didn't have the right upbringing. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. They didn't need to try harder. They didn't need to be smarter. It wasn't possible for them to believe. John chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Okay, so this is just one of those areas where we have to say, perhaps my preconceived notions and my traditions just don't match up what the Bible actually teaches. Does your preconceived understanding of what God's life include? There are some people who he has decided to keep blind forever. Because if he gave them sight, they would believe and he would heal them. And he's decided not to do it. If that's just so scandalous to you, you need to understand that that means you've picked something up that contradicts scripture. We're to be people of the word. We're to be people who bring that into submission to the Lord. It is not possible to come to him unless you are drawn by the Father. Also, there's this inability to understand the truth. John chapter 14, verse 17. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it neither sees nor knows him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God because they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Their eyes are blind. Their hearts are cold and dead. Their, their understanding is so polluted by sin that it is impossible for them to know the truth. The, the, the truth of God to them is foolishness. It's stupidity. It's, it's contemptible. There's an inability to seek God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 that we just read. No one is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Again, all of this, this, this comprehensive inability is because we are born dead in sin. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. As we read from Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Colossians 2 verse 13 says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart. 
We were born blinded and corrupt in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark chapter 7, verse 21. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. There's this poison in our heart that just pumps itself out into all of our faculties, into all of our thinking, into all of our reasoning and understanding, into all of our actions. John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, the mind is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We are born captive to sin and Satan. Romans chapter 6, verse 19. You were slaves to sin. Surrendering all your members to sin in obedient service. 2 Timothy verse or chapter 2, verse 25, says, Unregenerate man is in the snare of the devil, captured by him to do his will. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How much worse can it get? This is just a little sampling of what the Bible says about the human condition. And yes, we have a will. And yes, we make real decisions. But we are only free to do that which accords with our nature. That's why birds can fly and we can't. Because it's in a bird's nature to fly. And it is not in our nature to fly. We we are only free to do what is within our nature to do. We don't have fully autonomous free will to just do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. If you don't think that's true, I would invite you to fly one lap right now around this room. It won't take long. We'll wait. No, we, we, we all agree that God limits the freedom of our choices. We can't just do what we want. We can only do that which accords with our neighbor. And now here's the question. What does the word of God reveal about our nature? Eh, neutral. Just depends on your upbringing, right? That's those verses we just read basically say that. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. Holy evil. Thoroughly corrupt, twisted by sin. Martin Luther called this the bondage of the will. Matthew chapter 7 and and, and again in chapter 12, Jesus says, A bad tree does not bear good fruit. So we're, we're, we're bad trees. We're not able to just by some force of will produce good fruit. Because we're not good trees. We need to be made into good trees. And then, yes, we will bear good fruit. Good fruit that will last. Much fruit, in fact. 
Well, that's not how humanity starts. That's not the starting point for any of us. As that great theologian Bob Dylan once said, I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead when I stepped out of the womb. That's exactly right. All of humanity, whether they know it or not, is in total solidarity with their father, Adam. His sin and death became everyone's sin and death. And in our spiritually dead and enslaved position, we have no moral ability whatsoever to improve our condition. And as the Apostle Paul reveals to us in Romans 1, we have no desire to do so. That's horrible news. It's horrible news. In fact, it's hopeless news. If this is the end of the story, it's hopeless news. And God would be fair and just if that had been the end of our story. I created mankind. I made all of this creation, the crowning gem of my creation, mankind, made in my image. And what do they immediately do? They rebel against my one command. God would be just to say, I leave you to it. It's not the end of the story. But can you see that salvation must belong to God alone if man is totally incapable of helping himself? If what scripture says about our state is true, that we're dead, that we're in this pit that is so dark, so deep, that no man could ever climb his way out, that we are locked up in this dungeon of sin, handed over by God for judgment, So deceived that we don't even want to be free. We are content down in the filth, down in the dungeon, down in our slavery and death. If that's really the state of humanity, then salvation must belong to God alone. He must be the one to save. If that's the state of humanity, there's only one hope. That is a hopeless state. There's only one hope. And that is God must act on our behalf. That's exactly what the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ tells us that he has done. He has acted on our behalf. The the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It starts with terrible news. It starts with the terrible news of our complete inability to do anything to get out from the condemnation and and hatred towards God that all men are born with. But the good news is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died in the place of his people in order to grant us life, to, to lift us up from the pit, that God saw fit to reach down to us, to his chosen people, and to save us. To make us live. To cause our dead hearts to live. To cause our blinded eyes to see him for who he really is. To produce in us worship and obedience and joyful submission. In these hearts that once only pumped out the venom of sin. The poison of sin that that affected every aspect of our being. God has now given us new hearts that, that pump out gratefulness and praise and worship and desire for obedience and repentance. Again, as we've read, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then if you are reading along with me in Ephesians 2, if you're still open there, we, we get the rest of the story. That's not the end of the story. Then comes that next glorious phrase, but God. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us to lie alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It couldn't be. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no man may boast. Oh, friends, this is why we glory in the gospel. This is why we sing. This this black background that has been laid out for us of our sinful depravity. And then God takes this glorious diamond of Christ's work in his life, death, and resurrection that we find in scripture actually stretches all the way back from before the foundations of the earth, when we were chosen in him. And God lays that diamond out for us, and he shines his light on it. And and we see the splendor shining off of every facet and every cut in that diamond. That we were God's enemies. That we were helpless sinners. That we were God-haters. But that Christ died for us while we were dead in our sins. While we were in that state. And then now all who put their trust in him, this this gospel is the power of God for salvation. Christian, it's not that you were drowning. It's not that you were out in the ocean bobbing up and down with the waves hitting you in the face and and it felt helpless and you were in serious, serious trouble and God threw a life raft out to you and said, now climb on and don't fall off. Oh, that's not what God's done. You were dead. You were drowned. You were at the bottom of the ocean. God pulled you up. As an act of his own kindness. You didn't generate that in your dead, drowned state. God reached down. He pulled you up from the waters. He set you on the shore. He breathed life into you. And he said, now you're alive. Act like it. That's what God has done for us. The only one who can take credit for salvation is God, not us. The glory belongs to him, all of it, him alone. God saves sinners by his grace, for his glory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what that means for us. Of course, he's deserving of of worship. And praise, it should humble us. It should fill us with gratitude. It should cause praise to just explode from within us. Here's what else it means. 
His arm is not too short. If this is the state of all people, dead in sin. It's not that some people wised up and came looking for him and God said, okay, you can come. No, he had to act on them. If that's true, it means he can save anyone. Even me. Even you. Even that loved one you've been praying for. Christian, here's what it means. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. We can, we can, we can pray. We can share the gospel. We can proclaim these truths knowing that, that it, it, is, it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And we can know that God actually does this work of causing dead hearts to live, of opening blind eyes so that they see him for who they are. Of opening their ears which are, are spiritually blocked in their, in their sin and in their bondage to sin. And he opens them and they hear the gospel, the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he grants to them the gift of faith and repentance. We need not look at anyone and say they're too far gone. We need not look at ourselves and say I'm too far gone. We need not look at ourselves when we stumble and say is God going to quit on me? Is God going to throw me out? Because if he has done this for you, Christian, then his promises to keep you forever are true. If the Lord Jesus Christ has, has picked you up and holds you in his hand, as he promises us in, in John chapter 6, then no one can snatch you out. And you're not man enough to jump out because he holds you and you're not stronger than him. Oh, don't you see how good this news is? Don't you see how glorious this gospel is? No sin is too great. No sinner is too far gone. As Richard Sibbs says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Think about the weight of that. Think about the depths of the sin that we have just discussed, just with this avalanche of verses that's just scratching the surface of, of human sinfulness revealed in Scripture. But even that is an unbearable weight when we just let it stand on its own. Oh, but friend, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, you in your kindness have revealed to us the depths of our depravity, not so that we would despair, so that we would despair of our sin, so that we would run to the cross of Christ and there find mercy. There find forgiveness and there find freedom and there find new and living hearts and renewed minds. And there have our wills transformed to will and to work for your good pleasure. Because it's you who works in us. Lord, I thank you for all of these sweet promises in scripture that you save to the uttermost. Lord, any who comes to you, any who, who trusts in you, who trusts in your son, Lord, I thank you for the promise in Scripture that you don't leave us in the state that you found us, but you transform us, that your, Christ, your people will bear good fruit. That it's not that we will go on living as we had been before, but somehow you're forced into keeping us, but that we are transformed and now live as, as good trees who bear good fruit. It's you who preserves us in the faith. It's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our striving and our working and our wisdom and our holiness, but it is dependent on the work of Christ in us. 
So we ask you, Lord, by your spirit to continue to work in us, to continue to shape us into the likeness of Christ, that our lives would testify to the goodness and glory and beauty of this gospel, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Pray, Lord, that you would cause our love for you to grow as we understand these things, that they wouldn't be points to fight over, but they they would be cause for worship and rejoicing. Lord, I pray you would make us faithful ambassadors of this gospel, of this kingdom, to dead men that surround us in this world. But Lord, dead men who are not outside your reach. Pray, God, that, that, that these truths would fill us with confidence to proclaim your truth, to speak the truth in love as those whom you have made alive. Pray, Lord, that you be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.